now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this special release season of Just Science, we discuss leadership with prominent names in the forensic community. This episode features Jody Wolf, the Assistant Crime Lab Administrator at the Phoenix Police Department Laboratory Services Bureau. Wolf tells us how forensic science found her at a pivotal time in her life and how she found an amazing career at the Phoenix Crime Lab. With a background that only strengthens her ability as a leader, Just Science examines how sometimes rethinking old procedures or even how a lab is structured can create an overall better and more efficient justice system. This season was funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. Today with me is Jody Wolf, the Assistant Crime Lab Administrator for the Phoenix Police Department Laboratory Services Bureau. They are ANAV ISO 17025 accredited. They employ over 140 technical and support personnel. They provide forensic services to the fifth largest city in the United States in Phoenix with a population of over 1.6 million residents, among many, many, many other services to the forensic science community. Jody is a past president of the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors, ASCLAD. And in connection with some of the things we'll be talking about today in her laboratory, including some of the work that they're doing in sexual assault kit evidence processing, she uh, led, uh, for example, the Maricopa County Danny Multidisciplinary Lab Subcommittee for the development of the Maricopa County Sexual Assault Protocol, as well as many other things related to that issue. She grew up, I understand, in Fair Play, Colorado, got her uh, Bachelor of Science degrees in Biology and Chemistry from Regis University in Denver, Master of Science in Chemistry from Arizona State University. University and received a master's in business administration with an emphasis in technology management from the University of Phoenix. Welcome, Jody. Thank you very much for having me. There's several things that are unique about you. One of them is that you came into the crime laboratory with an MBA. That was something that is unusual and gives you a perspective on management and leadership in the crime laboratory, which I think is unusual and mm-hmm. unique. And uh, also that you grew up in Fair Play in a, in a former saloon. <laughs> <laughs> before you got to, before you found honest work in Phoenix. So where is Fair Play exactly in Colorado? Um, it is right in the middle of the mountains. If you are familiar with Colorado at all and know where Breckenridge is at, it's on the eastern side of the pass. If you go east-west okay. of mm-hmm. Hoosier Pass from Breckenridge, did the Donner Party go through there? Is that... they did? Okay, they did, and actually, the movie that they made about that back in the late seventies, we were part of the. <laughs> filming crew. Okay. <laughs> and there's a little historic museum in Fairplay. Oh. With architecture from the Old West and railroad and stores and things like that and they use that as the part of the set mm-hmm. for the Donner Party movie and my family and I were part of the extras and I don't know that we actually made it into the movie. How old were you at the time that they made the movie? Seven-ish. Seven, eight. I'll have to look to see if there's a little mini Jody Wolf in, 
<laughs> in the movie, a little kid looking very like a future crime laboratory administrator. We just did a podcast with Ben Swanholm, who works for you yeah. here in, in the lab, who grew up out in the middle of nowhere in North Dakota where yep. they don't have any crime. I assume there's very little crime anymore in Fair Play. There is not. So, not anymore. Not any more gunfights or anything like that. So why forensic science? Forensic science sort of found me. I went to school as an undergraduate, uh, intending to go to medical school. Love science, I've always loved science. From when I was a little kid all the way through high school and was very passionate about it and also happened to excel at it as well. And my biology teacher in high school pointed me in the direction of Regis University because his daughter had attended that university and went there, absolutely loved it. Double majored biology and chemistry, was pre-med. Went through the whole shebang to become a doctor, did the MCATs, did all the interviews, applied. After I'd finished applying, got really super nervous that I wasn't going to get accepted and called ASU because they had sent me a flyer about their graduate chemistry program. So called them because I wanted to have a backup plan Mm -hmm. because I'm a planner. Sure. (laughs) And uh, they asked me to send them my transcripts, so I did, and they flew me down and got me into their chemistry program. On a side note, I actually was accepted to both medical schools that I applied to, but... You wound up deciding not to do that anyway. You have been a great doctor. What kind of doctor were you trying to be? Um, I knew that I didn't want to be a general practitioner, probably Mm -hmm. a surgeon, but I hadn't fully decided on what my specialty was going to be at that point. But ASU made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Sure. So went that route Mm -hmm. and quickly realized that I still loved science, but research per se wasn't my forte good at it, but not necessarily something that I garnered a lot of energy from. So entered the workforce at that point as a scientist, as an analytical chemist in the private industry, and uh, did some environmental fate testing for uh, companies like DuPont, Roman Haas, Romplank, companies like that. So it was still research, but it was more applied science as opposed to on the very front end, I was doing, as a part of my thesis in graduate school, I was doing organic synthetic analysis. Or mm-hmm. So you make a molecule and then you characterize it. Sure. Make a molecule and you characterize it. No offense it's... to anybody who does that, <laughs> but it was really boring. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I know people who've made that their career and they have a particular kind of personality. They do. That, mm-hmm. was, not, that was not me. And sure. so I appreciate that I recognize that. That's a lot of NMR. A lot of NMR. Mm-hmm. A ton of NMR and 3D NMR. And sure. Got to use some really great instrumentation. Um, yeah. It made me a better scientist, but I also realized that that was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So mm-hmm. entered the workforce, became an analytical chemist, fell in love with chromatography, and I quickly moved up in the ranks in that private lab and became the lab supervisor and hired a really qualified individual from Utah. Her name is Nancy Crump and she worked for me for six months and then got a job at the Phoenix Police Department. Hmm. And we became really, really close friends Mm -hmm. and I went to her baby shower and she handed me an application for the Phoenix Police Department and said, you need to come work here. You get paid overtime. You get to play with drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just a really great place to work. And so I submitted my application and I've never looked back. Yeah. Forensic science found me and I absolutely love it. 
Well, it's really cool because, as we mentioned, you not only have the MBA, the forensic science area is one of the places where women actually have been able to be successful in the sciences Mm -hmm. and actually move up and be managers in the sciences and leaders in the sciences relatively easily. Is that something that attracted you or is that just something that happened? I think it just happened. I was very fortunate in my experience in that I've always had women examples of leadership in all the institutions that I've worked at. I've never ever felt that I didn't get an opportunity or I wasn't afforded support or opportunities to be able to excel at whatever I wanted to do because of my gender. Mm -hmm. Never. So how long have you been the assistant crime lab administrator here in Phoenix? Uh, 11 years. Which covers an awful lot of your national leadership work as well. Yes, it does. So one of the things that you did for a long time, I mean, was working not only in talks, but you also did some of the evidence processing reforms still evolving here in Phoenix. Is that right? Yeah, I actually started with Phoenix 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been a very fast 17 years. To the, the day I got hired to today can say that Phoenix is the best place I've ever worked. And I had 10 years in the private industry from government laboratories to private laboratories. It is hands down the best place I've ever worked. I started in the controlled substances unit, taking advantage of my analytical chemistry background, and then went to the forensic biology unit where I was a serologist or screener, and then was tapped to do a quality assurance project because we were seeking our first reaccreditation under ASCLAD lab. And had an opportunity to look at uh, our latent print processing service within the laboratory. So we had staff dedicated to the development of latent prints. And we were very much like a lot of other laboratories where the item of evidence, where you can do multiple things to it, like a gun per se, you can process it for latent prints, you can swab it for DNA, and you need to do firearms analysis with it. And at the time, we had this, this thought process that you either had to choose latent prints or you had to choose DNA and process them for that type of evidence exclusively. Um, And so we had staff that was a part of the latent print unit that were dedicated to just developing latent prints. Uh, They weren't trained in any other type of collection technique or any other type of expertise, just latent prints. And so as a part of the QA project to get all of us ready for a reaccreditation, I was assigned to them to do a review of their operations and things like that. And It was an incredible experience because I'd always been on the analytical side, (laughs) and the comparative side is a whole new world. Yeah, they do business very, very differently, but just by the nature of what you're looking at. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it was a great experience. I learned so much during that time frame about the comparative disciplines, and because of the work I did, I was asked to uh, Mm -hmm. lead the latent print processing unit. And we actually formed a new unit in the laboratory where we combined some of my techniques from my serology days, combined it and paired it with the latent print processing techniques. So sure. How'd they take to that? We had to do it as a pilot program first. Um, mm-hmm. We had to prove that the methodology would be effective. And so we called it a triage pilot program. We targeted homicide units. We did a homicide cases. We did a side-by-side comparison processing homicide cases during a six-month time frame the way that we had traditionally done it. Mm -hmm. And then during that same time, also processed homicide cases using the triage approach. The way they qualified, it had to be a no-suspect case. The items of evidence had to be complex, so it had to be a complex crime scene, complex case. Items of evidence required multiple analyses. For example, I'll go back to that firearm Mm -hmm. or a bottle where we can have the potential to utilize multiple forensic techniques on the same item of evidence. Before, in our laboratory, those items of evidence would get into a work queue for that section, 
and whenever it popped up onto the top of their priority list is when they would get it. So whether forensic biology got to it first or the latent print unit got to it first was really the type of technique that was applied to that item of evidence. Sure. We trained our analysts both in um, latent print processing to recognize and collect biological evidence and then also trace evidence, get that item of evidence in, do all of it in one step, and then the latent prints go to the latent print analysts, the DNA swabs go to the DNA analysts, and the fire goes to the firearms. So it compressed our timeline and we were able to provide investigative intelligence much quicker Mm -hmm. to the homicide unit. We did a pre and post evaluation. Mm -hmm. So what did people think of the laboratory, both internally and externally, and then what did people Mm -hmm. think after we adopted this process? We saw an increase in, in appreciation and support for the types of testing that we did. Turnaround times decreased, capabilities increased. Overall, really good experience. We learned a lot about ourselves during that process. And so we created a new section of the laboratory called, at the time, was the Evidence Processing Unit. Now it's called the Evidence Screening Unit because we've incorporated total serology analysis into the unit. And across all case types, not just homicide. Across all case types. So Mm -hmm. we really see that as the central focal of the wheel of the laboratory because most of the evidence comes through the Evidence Screening Unit. Mm -hmm. They're always on the front line interface between crime scene response and the other sections of the laboratory. We are very proud of our approach to front-end forensics and being able to get that investigative intelligence back out to the field Mm -hmm. so that they can make some decisions about furthering those investigations. The turnaround time is also about the ability of your laboratory to manage its operations. Mm-hmm. I know in particular in serology, it can be difficult to make sure that you have, <laughs> you know, just the number of evidence processing samples yeah. that are necessary to build a probative case, but not necessarily every last bloody thing, if Correct. I may speak literally. <laughs> Correct. I, uh, at the same time when we that we did this triage pilot program, we learned very quickly on that the best approach is to utilize best science and best evidence. Mm -hmm. Not everything in the kitchen sink, but to make really informed decisions as a collaborative effort between field ops and laboratory ops to be able to identify that best evidence and then also identify those best scientific techniques to get to the answers that are really probative and meaningful. So we developed a practice through that triage pilot program that we turned into policy very quickly called case evaluation and case acceptance. Mm-hmm. So we meet with our customers regularly on these complex investigations so that we can have that dialogue and identify what is the best evidence and what are the best scientific techniques that we can use to answer those questions relative to those particular investigations. So to give you an example, one of our pilot cases, and this is going, this is going back a ways. That's fine. That's was fine. A, I like stories. Stories uh, are great. Triple homicide. We have victims inside the house, adult males. At least there were four adult males, three of which were deceased as a result of the triple homicide. There was a female victim and children inside the house. There's marijuana bales in one of the back bedrooms. Bad guys come to the door, knock on the door, pretend that they're police, have police lanyards and badges and police insignia. Male victim answers the door and there's a shootout. They have automatic and semi-automatic weapons exchanged both from the house outside and outside inside. So tons of shell casings. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Part of that scene, uh, three of the male victims inside the house were deceased. We processed that scene. We collected over a thousand items of evidence. But witnesses reported that the suspects fled the scene through a parking lot over a wall. They dropped evidence as they were fleeing the scene, including a balaclava, 
and uh, police badge and. I'm sorry. What was the first thing you said? A balaclava. A balak. Oh, oh, oh! The thing that the little hood ski thing. Ski cap thing ski that cap. covers yeah, your face. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Never was a skier. <laughs> yeah. Never did any. I grew up either. skiing at 10,000 feet elevation. <laughs> exactly. and that's all we did. So this is how we connect fair play into Phoenix. That's good. Good to know we have a connection. That's good. Yeah, we grew up skiing. That's yeah, I'm sure you did. Were any of them hit? Did you get any blood nope. from the? Uh, no, none of the suspects were hit. Wow. You know, we collected over a thousand items of evidence from that scene, but do you process a thousand items of evidence? Is it realistic to have the capacity to analyze that much evidence? And is it really going to give you that much more information? So sure. we have a conversation about what are the questions? What evidence do we have? What techniques do we have available to us? Mm-hmm. How do we combine all of those to answer the questions relative to that investigation? And so I think we analyzed approximately 10 or so items. Mm-hmm. And we got a codice hit. So that's 1%. So basically swabbing a firearm probably mm-hmm. or something like that? Yeah. I think it was the badge. We did swabs from the block fence, the center block fence that they jumped over. Mm-hmm. The police shield that they dropped in the parking lot. We did analyze the ski mask. But we, we developed a profile, I think, from the police shield. And uh-huh. it went into CODIS and we got a codice hit. So cool. a huge success very early on in the pilot program. Um, and we learned a lot about ourselves. That transitioned into and has evolved to what we have today so that we can do post-processing swabbing so it's not exclusive to just latent print processing or DNA. We'll process for latent prints, use, utilize clean techniques, swab the areas where we're, we're seeing friction ridge detail for DNA, processing those for DNA. Um, it allows us to be more efficient and collect better evidence. We're also doing full serology analysis during that step. The downside to it, because there are always downsides. Yeah is that it really intensive training program to get your analysts up to dual skill set at a minimum so both latent print processing and you have to look at their ability to capture quality latent prints plus serological testing so we invest a lot in our analysts in terms of training for that very reason so as somebody who is not an actual forensic scientist i just like a lot <laughs> like to work with forensic scientists so to me serology would be much more rules based anyway to some extent it is something that's like what do you see there's a certain set of rules for how you might judge it latent pin processing is much more of an art to some degree i mean is that fair is that a fair i would actually disagree a little bit mm-hmm. um because in my experience, having sat in both seats, they're very similar in terms of your, your methodology to approaching the evidence. Use very similar skill sets in being able to recognize where the probative evidence is, whether it's stains, whether it's friction ridge detail, photography. They're very similar in that structure. They also have very specific process flows that you have to follow. So whether it's porous or non-porous, if you're talking about latent print processing, what chemicals do you use to to enhance the latent print so that you can visualize them? You're using alternate light sources in both serology sure. and latent print processing. You use stereo zoom microscopes to help you visualize on the latent print processing side. You're doing the same thing on serology. You use a compound microscope on the serology mm-hmm. side. So they're very similar. The additional thing that you see with latent print processing is that once you observe the friction merge detail, is there enough detail that then becomes usable that an examiner could either enter it into APHIS or do a direct comparison? That's the opinion. That's the expert side. Mm-hmm. That's where you have to make a determination based on the, in the information that you have. Is there enough to do something with? Which is not very different from chromatography, if you think about it. You still have to look at at your mass spectral pattern and determine is there enough information there to make a determination about what you have. It's just different. 
So let's shift gears a little bit. So talked a little bit about your work for the sexual assault protocol. Uh-huh. So uh, to what extent was the development of the protocol? Do you feel like those protocols play into how your lab does things like evidence processing and has it affected it? And how did you get involved in the protocol and what were, you know, how did that impact mm-hmm. Maricopa County? The Forensic Biology Unit, including the Forensic DNA Analysis Service, reports to me in our command structure. Um, and so on a regular basis, we meet with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office. And you know, at, at a national level, sexual assaults has been very much a focal point of discussion, debate, legislation. Mm-hmm. And so through my national activities, this also occurred at a local level. It's been a focal point for for local discussion. And we meet on a regular basis with the leadership of our uh, county attorney's office, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, and the division chief over their special victims section applied for the Daney Grant. And we partner with them on multiple initiatives and worked together with them on this part of it. Which is the District Attorney of New York. Correct. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's okay. That's fine. That's part of my job is make sure all the acronyms get out there. Yeah. We do. I, we have a joke here that scientists talk an acronym, cops talk in code. So they sure. have a number for everything and we have an acronym for everything. And, mm-hmm. But um, they made available, I don't know what, it's a fair amount. I think it's 20 or $30 million. $38 million, I believe. Mm-hmm. Somewhere around in that ballpark for the Danny Grant. At the same time, at the federal level, we have the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative through BJA. You have the SAFER legislation that was just prior to that. We have the SAFER work group of experts. So from the state of Arizona, we had multiple representatives as a part of that national effort to develop best practices. And so all of these things happen all about the same time. And we partnered with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office to support their application for funding through both the Danny Grant, which came first, Mm-hmm. through the New York District Attorney's Office for the elimination of sexual assault kit backlogs. We also applied for the sexual assault kit initiative through BJA, and we were awarded in fiscal year 16 the Phoenix Police Department. At the same time, our partners at the County Attorney's Office were also awarded a SACI grant or a SACI grant, mm-hmm. depending on how you sure. <laughs> prefer it's, to pronounce it. It's fine either way. And there was a significant commitment at the local level to take to heart those best practices and how can we serve our community here for sexual assaults from the entire spectrum, not just DNA, but Mm -hmm. medical treatment of patients, investigations, the laboratory analysis, the prosecution, the victim support, Mm -hmm. across the board, how can we be leaders in this area and serve our community in the best fashion possible? So starting in July of 2016, we became a test all And a few months before that, we took a look at ourselves and realized quickly that we need to take stock of our internal capacity and our our capabilities Mm -hmm. and evaluate, can we do it better? And I think whenever you ask yourself that question, the answer is always yes. Can we do it better? Absolutely. So we put together a work group uh, comprised of DNA analysts, serologists, and section leadership and pose that question to them and they really did a great job on evaluating our work practices, our workflows, our work processes, and how can we maximize what we have to be able to do more and better without compromising quality and in fact increasing quality. So uh, we did an efficiency review, incorporated techniques like process improvement, Lean Six Sigma, uh, but this was all employee driven 
and mm-hmm. and they did a they did a fabulous job of of coming up with a up with a work process that is team centered so that you don't have one individual analyst that's responsible for all of the work for that case. We have DNA analysts that are dedicated to the laboratory function where they do all the chemistry work and then we have interpretation analysts that are responsible for interpreting the data and issuing the reports. We have dramatically reduced our turnaround times as a result. So we use high throughput, high capacity. We have actually utilized Y technology since 2006. So YSTR analysis isn't new for us, but the ability to use it as a screening technique to evaluate how much male DNA is present, since most assaults are male-female, that is new for us and we've validated uh, that technique in our... Currently, my group upstairs is going through some testing samples and testing cases and things like that so that we can optimize that that business process as we speak. So that utilizing it as a screening technique versus traditional serology where we would do sperm searches uh, Mm -hmm. is recommended as best practice and we've adopted that in a direct to DNA approach for our sex kits. We also utilize robotics and we've been doing that for, again, many years. (laughs) So when you do that screening, are you actually getting a, uh, is it it like a quantitation step basically is how you're using Mm -hmm. it? Yeah, direct to DNA where we utilize YSTR quantitation analysis. We're using Mm -hmm. Quantrio as the kit to determine and evaluate how much male DNA is present Mm -hmm. um, so that we can identify which samples are uh, most probable to develop uh, information that can further an investigation or inform us about that particular type of evidence. Wow. One of the things I love about what you just described was how the team put together mm-hmm. these reforms and improvements in how you all do business and, and bring in not only new technologies, but work smarter as well. Yes. So you've been very influential with not only AskLad, but elsewise in leadership and management training, mm-hmm. part because of your background with your MBA that you brought into the laboratory. Yes. I, having a degree doesn't mean a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's, yeah. It's, I absolutely it, agree. Yeah. It's about the passion of it, right? Yeah. And, and it's reflected. So one of the things that Jody has been involved in is not only the AskLad Leadership Academy itself, mm-hmm. but she's also uh, worked with me and RTI on the National Forensic Science Academy at all also the FTCOE's Leadership Academy. So there's a free 12 course series with a learning management system and assessments that you can get on to the FTCOE website and not only hear about Jody, talk about (laughs) generations and several other things, but a very nice compliment, I think, to the AskBlad Leadership Academy as well. So I encourage folks to listen to Jody talk about how to build teams and communications and diverse uh, teams as well. Absolutely. Let's Wrap it up talking about rapid DNA. You all are doing a little rapid DNA work here, right? Or uh, We have the good fortune, I've talked about, or at least reference relationships mm-hmm. that we can build across the community. And uh, we have incredible partners here locally in the crime lab community. And the Arizona Department of Public Safety has a rapid DNA program that we benefit from. They have purchased rapid DNA instruments that they use both inside the laboratory and then outside the laboratory for investigative intelligence purposes and the analysis of crime scene evidence. And we have very much benefited from their program and have staff trained in the utilization of rapid DNA. And I can just give you an example. That's the way it makes the most sense. I love examples. You know I love stories. I told you I love stories. (laughs) They have rapid DNA instruments that also utilize a small pond technology that houses DNA profiles mm-hmm. that we can search investigatively and let's say that we have a traffic collision 
that were fatalities involved and the driver of the vehicle that caused the accident flees the scene but his blood's left on the steering column. We're looking for presumed single source samples that are non-consumptive so we're not going to utilize all the sample where we can collect that biological material typically blood or saliva uh, sometimes they've used neat semen samples with this technology as well. Mm -hmm. We can collect that utilize a certified operator whether they're law enforcement or laboratory staff take that over to DPS use the instrumentation so we use the instrumentation they make it available to us we run the analysis search it against the small pond investigative database and potentially identify um, an investigative lead that can within you know two to three hours the analysis actually takes 90 minutes but between sample prep getting the results and everything it's it's a two to three hour process provide that information back to law enforcement and generate that investigative intelligence that can further that investigation. So we've done that on multiple cases, some very high profile cases, which has, has aided us. We always wanna make sure that there's still sample that's available that can go through our traditional analysis so we can either enter the profile into CODIS and or utilize it in a court proceeding. So that's why it has to be non-consumptive in terms of being able to still have sample available to go back through a traditional uh, laboratory analysis and develop that profile. So, Sure. Now that's an Arizona DPS program. It's an Arizona DPS program. Is it the state crime laboratory that ensures that the procedures are, mm -hmm. are validated, that the instruments yeah. are taken care of and all that? Yeah, they did a lot of work in validating their instrumentation, ensuring that it would be appropriate to use on those types of crime scene samples. My understanding is they also worked with the FBI to ensure that everything was to expectation in terms of quality and all of that kind of good stuff. I worked with them very closely. ASCLAD has several committees that are dedicated to rapid DNA now, and uh, with the approval of the Rapid DNA Act, which I actually testified on in front of the House Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we were able to be able to really start to move forward with that technology. So sure. DPS is going to be a part of a pilot program that looks at it from a booking station perspective. I have staff that are part of that subcommittee out of ASCLAD. I'm on the Mass Disaster Subcommittee for ASCLAD. And so there's there's a ton of work dedicated to this really exciting technology that we, we think will, will definitely play a role, be a tool in the toolkit in the future for... Sure. FTCUE, of course, had done a uh, rapid DNA workshop right yes. around the time of the passage of that act. Yep. Uh, and that's all archived also on the FTCUE webpage. We'll make sure to... <laughs> Uh, link that from the podcast page as well for folks who want to learn more about that. Now, Tom Callahan was there from the FBI, and I've known Tom a long time. Yeah. And Tom's been at the FBI a long time. Back, yes. uh, and he loves to tell the story about how uh, he was one of the first civilians to into the crime laboratory at the FBI. <laughs> they didn't trust whether a civilian could do forensic science for the FBI. But Tom has been very open. I think he's done a really good job about talking about the standards with rapid DNA and, mm -hmm. and being able to use the investigative leads as rapidly as possible to do the work of criminal justice. So. Yeah, I think there's absolute value in the technology and it's mm -hmm marrying the technology with the infrastructure and the quality measures that are needed to ensure that we get the most out of the technology mm -hmm. going forward. And so it was very much a collaborative effort between all the entities when the legislation first came up at a federal level where they had the, the hearing for the House Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. um, we worked with the FBI on that. And subsequent to that, ASCLAD and CFSO has done a lot of work with Senator Hatch's office to be able to develop that 
that legislation and actually get it approved so that we can really put the rubber to the road and, and make this happen for the United States. So uh, I mentioned to Ben, but I'll mention here too, because Phoenix Crime Lab is one of the a really pretty one. You've got a wonderful chandelier <laughs> with uh, glass made of lab glassware, but you also have a hallway here of historical stuff. Yes. Including a uh, very some very nice old breathalyzer equipment. <laughs> yeah. And to me, it's the same. It's just a different kind of, of modality, right? Mm-hmm. The breathalyzer and the rapid DNA are trying to push out into the investigative side. Yeah some of that technology from the forensic science community. Uh, TrueNARC, you also do the, yep. the, the TrueNARC as well out there yep. for controlled substances. So uh, it's all part of the spectrum as the technology evolves, trying to use it appropriately. Use it appropriately. I think that's really important, regardless of the type of technology that you're trying to adopt, is is doing it appropriately in the best way that you can in a measured and controlled capacity with inputs and making sure that you have confidence in your outputs. So. So how do you measure how well you're doing? Let's just take this one issue on the sexual assault kits. You all have gotten several different grants. You've done an awful lot of work Mm -hmm. on how you're going to process them and bringing in all these new technologies. How are you measuring how well you're doing with all that work? So I am a quintessential geek. Yes, good for you, Jody. (laughs) And I I love numbers. We have been a member of the Foresight program since its second year, so we weren't a part of the first year, but the first year that they actually captured data and did reports, that was our first year in the program. So we've been a part of Foresight for a long time, and even before that, we have been uh, very much invested in tracking. You can't know how well you're doing unless you can measure it. Right. Um, which is a key principle from, from the business world. So I'm very thankful that I have that experience to bring that to our laboratory, but we do on a monthly basis what's called a monthly management report. And we utilize some of the foresight stuff, but we always will go a little bit beyond that, what's called balanced scorecarding, where we look at the four different areas of our organization, core business operations, financial, learning and growth, which incorporates our quality aspects of of what we do and training for our, our analysts, and then customer service. So the very four aspects of our organization, we measure key performance indicators to evaluate performance, overall performance. What opportunities do we have in front of us? We've been doing that for about 10 years or so, so we can trend analysis, we can communicate to our decision makers in dialogue that they can understand dollars and cents. <laughs> sure, right. Mm-hmm. And not, and in addition right. to... Makes the world go around. Uh, it does. In addition to how we can aid investigations in that public safety perspective, but it, it's really important to us as an organization to be able to, to capture those key performance indicators in all those areas to monitor and measure overall performance. And we do that not only in those four areas, but for every discipline in the laboratory and within each discipline of the laboratory, at an analyst level, track all of that information. It's a tremendous amount of information, specifically for sexual assault kits, because that's Mm -hmm. what you asked about. We have performance measures that we are tracking specifically for that. Most of it's driven by our funding sources and information that they're interested in, but also some measures that are for our organization and not only inside the laboratory, but also for investigators. So it's a plethora 
yes. of well, data and information that allows us to make really good, informed decisions. You made my day talking about Paul Speaker and the Foresight Program. <laughs> we actually have a separate podcast that we did with Paul. Oh, about very foresight. good. So very I, good. I, anybody who's listening to this, go over and, and listen to the Paul Speaker one as well. It's an yeah. excellent program and really important long-term, I think, in terms of understanding how innovations get put into practice into crime laboratories and understanding what the impacts uh, can be in fundamentally to the business of forensic science. Whatever I teach, whether it's process improvement or grant management or operations, I always emphasize data-driven decision-making. Mm-hmm. And you have to have the data. The data is core to being able to make really good decisions about your operations of a crime laboratory. Now, it's not to the be-all and end-all of being able to make a decision, but you have to have the data. And so I'm very much an advocate, if you can't tell by now, (laughs) (laughs) about being able to capture those key performance indicators or KPIs for your institution to be able to to make those types of decisions and see what's coming your way, too, see where your laboratory is going. And as a part of that, Foresight, ASCLAD, has a program called Foresight 2020, of which Paul is one of our program members. And uh, our laboratory is a beta laboratory for that program. So we actually just got the Foresight 2020 interface, and we are playing right now, and I'm very happy. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Well, that's a wonderful note on which to end. Uh, We've been with Jody Wolf, the Assistant Crime Lab Administrator for the Phoenix Laboratory Services Bureau. Thank you very much for being on Just Science. Thank you for having me. Next week on Just Science, we will speak with Martina Bison-Huckabee, the director of the Center for Executive Education at West Virginia University. Ms. Bison-Huckabee will discuss Western Virginia University's College of Business and Economics where leadership trainings are offered to the forensic community. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.